You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, October 3rd, 2012, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Welly, welly, well, well. How's everyone? <laughs> Super. What language is that? Real horror show. Real horror show. <laughs> what? Borrowed a little Kubrick there. Well, Burgess, uh, I suppose. Burgess, yeah. Yeah. Little Clockwork Orange. Yeah, it's a good movie. I like any book where you invent a slang just for your own book. <laughs> a glossary, yeah. There's a glossary at the back of that book because yeah. you need to. Otherwise, you can't figure it out. Like, what the heck is a lamtik of toast, right? Or I mean, how are you going to know? Starry Devochka. Well, if you speak Russian, it's a lot easier because it actually is Russian. I think that the uh, the slang in that book, though, and the way that they presented it in the movie, it just has it has like a half not serious feel to it, which I like. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. almost like they're joking when they're talking in their slang. Well, the the, the best one was Horosho, which is a Russian word. They turned into horror show. Horror show. Oh, cool. That's right. Yeah, that was awesome. Rebecca, what's special about today? I've got a good one today, you guys. Okay, on this day in 1945, the curse of the billy goat was placed on the Chicago Cubs. It is what's a that? curse that continues to this day. I'm glad you asked. Apparently, on October 5th, 1945, the Chicago Cubs were playing the Detroit Tigers. Those are baseball teams, you guys. Oh, yeah. Thank you. In the World Series at Wrigley Field. And a man named Billy Sianis, owner of the local Billy Goat Tavern, was in attendance with his pet goat, as one does. And according to some reports, the goat smelled so bad that the other fans in the stands demanded that they leave. And so they were kicked out, and Sianis was infuriated. And according to his family, he sent off an angry telegram to the team owner, Wrigley. And to this day, it remains quite possibly the greatest, possibly legendary telegram ever sent to anyone. And it reads... You are going to lose this World Series, and you are never going to win another World Series again. You are never going to win a World Series again because you insulted my goat. (laughs) So according to (laughs) the surviving Sianis family, the curse of the billy goat can only be cured by the Chicago Cubs showing a sincere fondness for goats and allowing goats back into Wrigley Field because... They genuinely want to, because the Chicago Cubs genuinely want to, and not just for publicity reasons. The curse of the goat will know. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) they haven't done it yet, and sure enough, the Chicago Cubs have not won a World Series since then. So So do you think that somebody inside the Chicago Cubs organization is actually thinking, you know, that damn goat curse? Oh, no doubt. People are always straight up trying to trying to fix this like fans at least are uh, a couple of years ago there was like a dead goat carcass found outside by some memorial statue or something didn't work apparently so yeah this is i guess this is big news around chicago i don't know why they haven't just let the goats come back into wrigley field because that sounds like a really fun theme night first of all <laughs> yep okay. uh second of all Maybe they maybe they fix the curse. Now, Rebecca, it's obvious because maybe if they not. if they did that and fixed the curse, 
then they would have no excuse for continuing to lose the World Series. Or not oh, I'm sure the they could find another excuse, Steve. The thing that really disturbs me is like, how bad did that goat smell? Like, what, what, what would make that goat smell? How could one animal smell that bad? That's what disturbs you about this story. If, <laughs> if it was a warm day, goats do not smell good. Moral of the story is wash your goat. That's that. That's the take home from this. Yeah, that's yeah, a good take. Thank home. you. So, Bob, you were going to give us one more way to beat the casino next time we're at Tam in uh, Las Vegas. Yeah. Maybe three ways. I like three ways. <laughs> yeah. I knew, I knew <laughs> somebody was going to wow. say it. Newsflash. Well, it looks like we can use science to all get rich at the casinos. This is, uh, this is, this is pretty interesting. Science have published in the American Institute of Physics Journal Chaos research showing that you can increase the odds of dramatic, you can dramatically increase the odds at winning at roulette. Now, you guys know roulette, right? I'm sure pretty much everybody knows it's a, uh, it's derived from the French little wheel, and uh, that little wheel has lots of numbered slots around the perimeter. And you spin the wheel, and then you send a metal ball around and around with it as well. And uh, then you could just you could bet what number the ball will land in, or what color, red or black. And there's lots of these little bets that you can do. It's a real easy game. I mean, I just pretty much encapsulated the whole thing in just a couple of sentences. Uh, but real easy at casinos generally means that the odds are shit, and they really are. They really are not good. With roulette, though, there's no real choice to make. There's no decision to be made that's based on anything like how good the dealers or the other players' hands are, like like such as in blackjack or poker. Each game is a single event. Bam, the ball lands in a slot. Done. That's it. So there's really... There's no not, skill. There's not a lot of wiggle room, exactly. And so, And please, don't use those stupid electronic boards that are ubiquitous. They tell you what numbers Streaks. have come up previously. Oh, I hate them. And yeah. People are always saying, "Well, look, look at the pattern of numbers that came up. <laughs> yeah, you know, pretty. now that means that blah 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 blah, whatever. They're independent events, like flipping a coin. One event has no impact on the next. And if the number thirty-four came up twenty times in a row in roulette, that would be amazing. But that information still would be no help in guiding your betting, assuming that it's not rigged, because uh, that's the first thing I would think if thirty-four came up twenty times. The only way that a knowledgeable player would do better at something like roulette is understanding the odds that go with each bet because there are different odds some are um what look to be 50 50 they aren't because Mm of the zero and double zero but uh you know the red black the odd even bets and then you can also bet on 12 numbers you can bet on three numbers you know so knowing your odds and the payouts involved can help slightly improve the edge you have uh or i should say would slightly uh, decrease the edge the casino has. Right, yeah. right. But yeah, but the, n- none of those magical boards ever actually gives you the edge. But it seems now, though, that you can increase your odds in roulette, though I'm pretty sure that you'll never be able to put it in practice. It's still very interesting. Michael Small, a statistician at the University of Western Australia, and Chi uh, Kong Si of Hong Kong Polytechnic University. They've apparently found that knowing the location of the ball and its relative speed compared to the wheel at the start is very important. Now, when I read that, I was like, well, no, duh. I mean, that's the key to maximizing predictability in chaotic systems, knowing the starting conditions as accurately as possible. The same thing applies to weather. The more you know about the current state of the atmosphere, the better your prediction is going to be. Now, of course, you can't know the starting conditions with absolute precision, even in theory, so predictability will still decay over time, and you won't be able to predict indefinitely in, in the future. But so, so for their experiment, 
this was uh, pretty cool. For the experiment, they recorded in a computer the times when the spinning wheel and ball passed a fixed point on the frame of the roulette table. So they had this device where they were they were watching the, the initial spin of the wheel and the ball, and they would they would do these uh, they would do these clicks that they used to enter the information into, into the computer. Now, based on that data, their relatively simple calculus and classical mechan um, classical mechanics calculations produced consistent experimental earnings of twenty percent instead of the expected loss of 2.7%. And that, that's really, really dramatic. Some people might know that uh, the European roulette, which is the one they used in the lab, uh, the odds are a little bit better. Uh, it's worse for the American roulette because we have that, we throw that extra cursed, uh, extra zero. The double zero. Which makes, yeah. right, the double zero. So it makes yeah, but it's the, the odds worse. It's very tempting. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a pretty dramatic increase, but they found that there were ways to even make it better by, by of course, gathering you know, better data. They they actually mounted a digital camera above the roulette the roulette wheel and uh, and used that information and there and the odds. Uh, European and, casinos are very lax yeah. these days. <laughs> so what was the point of this, Bob? And why would the casino let them do it? No, well, they, I mean, they didn't go in a casino and do this. This, is, this was all just like <laughs> this was all in the lab. No, no casino would let you you know do anything like this. But there was one other thing that they found that that increased the odds in uh, the players favor if the wheel was slanted even just a little bit because it, that, that introduces a bias that would let you uh, basically make your predictions even better so these three things that they did uh, dr can dramatically improve the odds now they didn't mention you know how much the odds went up with the slanted wheel and with the camera but they said it was even better than than the initial one remember though the calculations do not say the number will be 13 that roulette is far too chaotic for, for that to work. What it does tell you, though, is which side of the wheel the ball will likely land in. Just knowing that makes betting much easier because, remember, you can bet in groups of numbers. I mean, if you've played, I'm sure you've seen people spread their chips all over, like tons of tons of numbers. It can be annoying throwing their chips everywhere. So in 22 trials, Small and C predicted the correct half 13 times. When I first read that, I was like, well, so what? I mean, that's, you know, that's not, that's not that great. But... Just that slight edge gave them uh, the potential to make an 18% profit, which is really immense in roulette. Yeah, but that's the, the number of samples is too small, though. I mean, that could easily just be statistical variation, just fluctuation. Yeah, that, yeah, that's true. I thought of that, too. They, I was hoping that they would have done more than just I mean, 22 yeah, trials. And do I, and I do assume a they few did. hundred trials, and then I'll be impressed. Oh, yeah, yeah. Do, yeah, do a thousand trials. And, yeah, so I guess, yeah, I don't know why they did only, they only did 22. Yeah, but, why would they uh, go? They ran out of money. <laughs> But they go through well, the, the trouble of, of, you know, setting up all this equipment and, and writing a piece of software to, to figure stuff out. And then they, they only spin the wheel 22 times. That seems ridiculous. No, but I th don't forget though. This is, that's, that's just one suite of, of trials, I think, because don't forget they also did tests with the camera. They did tests with the, uh, the tilted wheel. So they did lots of different tests. Nah, so even I'd, still, these do a lot more trials. Yeah, yeah no, I, on, I agree, but I, I agree, it, but say it. It's yeah. The sample seems too small from what from what I've read. It's too thank small. You, thank but you. But I love I love that small uh, threw in a, a caveat in there so people wouldn't go crazy thinking that they were going to go get rich. He said he said roulette's a game of chance. Even if the odds are in your favor, there's still a probability of losing and losing big. In the long run, you would come out ahead, but you may first need very deep pockets. And that is so true, Steve. We've talked about this. Yep. One of the main reasons the house wins isn't necessarily that the odds are in their it's favor. Not true. A key reason is that you will what? That's not true? Not true. That is a fallacy. 
What that it, well, because the odds are in their favor? Are you disagreeing with me Keep or agreeing? Yeah, I'm disagreeing with you. The, the I made that mistake and I was corrected on it. And then I look, I had looked it up, and there's a lot of experts saying what you're oh, about to yeah. say that the absorption wall on the on the left side that if you lose all your money, then you lose the opportunity to win it back. Um, right. Oh, I do remember that. Yeah, but yeah, we don't yeah. but yeah, that's not true though because <laughs> that that's just another version of past events not affecting future events. At the moment you're removed from gambling because you lost all your money, you were just as likely to win or to lose from that point forward. So it has zero effect on the house. The only thing that determines the, the house's long-term haul is the odds. They need to have a, a statistical edge um, over the players. Yeah, that, that does make sense. I, that's just one of those things that got stuck in my head that I, that I always thought. And there's a um, lot of people, you know, true. a lot of mathematicians made that mistake, you know, said the the wrong answer. I had to keep digging to find the, it's Monty the right Hall-esque answer. It's Monty Hall-esque in its ability it is. to... It is. Kind of yeah. is. People. Now, Bob, yeah. one thing I was thinking of with this, you need computer power, right, in order to be able to make some the predictions. Right. But you can place your bets after the croupier has spun yes, the that's ball key. and the wheel. That's and you can key. Even, you can even observe it for quite a while before... There's no more bets. The, the, typically, the croupier will say no more bets pretty soon before the ball drops down into the numbers and starts bouncing around. That one thing, you know, theoretically makes this possible, but it's just that you'd never be able to have the equipment necessary to to pull this off in a casino. And there's no yeah. way you could do this by eye. There's just yeah, no way. Visual, yeah, you couldn't visually. Right? Yeah, you, you probably have to be a, a Vulcan or something. Unless you had a cool implant. Yeah, yeah, yeah you have to be a, a Vulcan, a cyborg, some, you know, something. Yeah, yeah I cheating. mean, I guess it's it's conceivable that somebody would have some sort of very simple, innocuous um, interface to a computer that's off-site, and that would let them quickly enter the information and, and get it back. Although that you know that's detectable and not foolproof. Right? That's it's it seems it's possible. Well, they, like somebody, you know, you could have somebody, you could have somebody with an iPhone sitting at the bar signaling someone at the roulette table. You know, yeah, I mean, it's as easy as that, really. Depending on how much processing power you need, but I can't imagine. Yeah, yeah, I bet you could write an app for that. Yeah. Uh, but I wonder, <laughs> I wonder what the turnaround time is. I mean, if it, if it takes you twenty or thirty seconds to pull this off, then that's that's too much time. But I, no, I yeah. think it's got to be in real think, time. I, th- I think it's definitely possible that it could be pulled off at least over the short term before they become really they become really savvy to this. All right. Well, the next new news item is about another vitamin that doesn't help with common colds. This is wait, uh, is this vitamin D? Yeah, vitamin about? D. Vitamin oh man. Delta. Yeah. So I guess D is after C in the alphabet, right? So vitamin C Last doesn't. Time I checked. Yeah, vitamin C doesn't work for common colds, and now we're on vitamin D doesn't work for common colds either. Guess what's next? <laughs> right. Washing <laughs> your hands. That's there's a vitamin wash. There you go. There are actually very good reasons to suspect that vitamin D supplements may be helpful for a number of respiratory conditions, uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, or asthma, or even upper respiratory infections. Uh, Vitamin D classically is important for bone homeostasis and bone health, uh, calcium regulation, but um, it's been found that it also is an important cofactor in certain aspects of the immune system for certain you know proteins in the immune system and vitamin D deficiency could uh, impair immune system function so therefore you know it stands to reason that supplementing vitamin D may be beneficial the the existing research was however recently reviewed and uh, it showed that there the there is no current evidence 
that just routinely taking vitamin D decreases the risk of getting a cold or the duration of getting a cold. And there was the largest study conducted to date. So this was um, 161 people in the vitamin D group, 161 in the control group. It was double blind, you know, placebo controlled. And they followed uh, subjects for 18 months and over 18 month period, the vitamin D group had no advantage over the placebo group. They both groups got about 3.7 colds per person over that period of time. 3.7 in the vitamin D group, 3.8 in the placebo group. So no statistically significant difference. Steve, what do you think of these numbers? 160, 161 people, 18 months? Are we talking a large enough sample size? That's reasonable. I mean, the rule of thumb is 50 people in each arm is a, is a reasonably powered study for most effect. it depends on the effect size you're looking for but for a clinically relevant you know moderate effect size yeah, so just I say rule of thumb 50 people in each group is 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 good so this is 161 in each group it's not a massive study but it's it's perfectly reasonable large enough certainly to have detected a clinically relevant effect obviously you can't rule out a tiny effect that would be too small to measure with that many people, but that's probably not clinically relevant either. Uh, this is probably not the last word on vitamin D and all you know, respiratory effects uh, because there is some reasonable plausibility here. There is some preliminary evidence to suggest that maybe it is helpful with COPD, for example. One big question in all of this research is, uh, does supplementing vitamin D help only with those who are vitamin D deficient or insufficient? Or will it also help with people who have a a normal level of vitamin D to begin with. Probably, it's, it seems that if there is a beneficial effect, it's probably limited to those people who are, are low in vitamin D. Many people, uh, their vitamin D levels do dip in the winter because we have less sunlight exposure. And that's also when the flu's going around and kids are in school and passing germs around and people get more colds. Taking a vitamin D supplement to prevent the dip in your vitamin D levels over the winter is not unreasonable. But certainly, you know, this study shows that it's not, you know, obviously a panacea. It's not helpful taking taken routinely. One criticism of the study was that this was conducted in New Zealand and uh, New Zealand gets more sunlight during their winter than maybe other parts of the world. And so the the question is, do the results of this study extrapolate to, um, to the northern hemisphere. Yeah, parts of the world or just you know farther away from the equator in either direction so that you have less sunlight exposure during the winter? That's, I think, a pretty minor criticism, you know, holding out for an effect. I think if there were any effect, they still would have seen something, you know, with, with this size study. If people want to repeat it in higher latitudes, then that, that would that would be reasonable. Uh, it would seem. Vitamin D has been very interesting in the last 10 years. You know, we've discovered a lot more about it, you know, above and beyond the classical view of it. Taking vitamin D supplements does seem to help uh, reduce the incidence and severity of autoimmune diseases like multiple sclerosis. We've been paying a lot closer, I know we've talked about it before on the show, we've been paying a lot closer attention to vitamin D, adjusting the levels that we think are, you know, the minimum normal levels and increasing the recommendation for supplementation. I definitely find that that physicians, primary care doctors, and others are checking vitamin D levels a lot more often now. It's almost become routine. And then recommending supplements for those whose levels are very low. So that's been a pretty significant change, you know, just over the last, you know, four or five years, which is interesting, but doesn't prevent the common cold. If you're concerned about it, what I would recommend is just have your levels checked. And if it's low, supplement it. If it's not low, don't worry about it. That seems to be the, the bottom line recommendation at this point. 
All right. Well, Jay, you're going to tell us about harpooning satellites. If you have a good arm, good strong arm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This doctor, uh, Doctor Jamie Reed from a company in Europe called Astrium is working on something really cool and incredibly important, in my opinion. He's trying to work out a way to deorbit dead spacecraft and space junk. And the, as we've talked about on the show many times before, the problem with space junk is growing every year. And as more and more countries send things up into outer space, of course, the uh, the amount of debris up there is significantly increasing. In the United States, uh, we have an agency called the Space Surveillance Network, and they've been tracking orbiting objects since it was founded in 1957. Now, they're tracking objects that are 10 centimeters, 3.9 inches, and up. But there happens to be an estimated 500,000 particles ranging in sizes between 1 and 10 centimeters across. And there's an estimated tens of millions of other particles smaller than 1 centimeter. So there, you know, the overall number of, of things that are floating around moving at very high speeds in orbit is huge. The bigger objects though, that we're talking about that, that Dr. Reed is working on deorbiting, uh, would include things like whole satellites, upper stages of rockets used to put those satellites up there, and debris from fuel tank explosions. So guys, how many objects do you think that are being tracked right now that are in the 10 centimeter or up size? About 100. 10, cent- 10 uh, centimeters think, or larger? I think it's yeah. like 50,000. 16,000. Evan? Wait, Steve, yeah. you just went from a hundred to sixteen thousand. <laughs> so, that was somewhere a suspicious in there. jump. One hundred thousand. Rebecca. Uh I'm gonna go with sixteen thousand. It's twenty two thousand. <laughs> Gr- yes. Greater than twenty two thousand. So Dr. Reed said that there are, are services that are provided, like telecommunications and things like that, that are, are having a growing um necessity that we, we rely on these things more and more and as we rely on them more and more it means we have to put more more spacecraft in orbit and you know that process increases the junk size you know the number of objects that are up there and the amount of junk that's up there and it makes the likelihood of of accidents more and more as the years roll by i mean even since the last time that we talked about this article i think it was over about a year ago or more you know there's there's thousands more objects in orbit now dr reed's experimenting with a barbed harpoon and in practice it would be about 30 centimeters in length and what they are thinking about doing is they'd mount it on what they call a chaser satellite that's kind of cool that would slowly fly within 100 meters say of a target object you know just edge its way up very carefully trying to match its trajectory and everything and then they would use a camera on on the chaser craft and send pictures back to Earth. And the people there would be like, "Do we want to deorbit this one or not? You know, what do we want to do with it?" And if they decide they want to deorbit it, then they they propose that they would use one of two techniques with the with the uh, chaser satellite. And that is that they would they would harpoon it and they would have a connection to it now, and then they would be able to tug the object. And from the article. It seems that I think they were they were hoping to jockey it out of orbit. You know, they would they would tug it in a, in a direction to kind of deorbit it and, and nudge it in the right direction. Another idea that they have, which I think is much cooler, is that they would cut that line, but at the end of that at uh, the end of the line attached to the harpoon, they would put a little thruster on the bottom of it, and that would like dip down, you know, towards towards the Earth, of course, because gravity's pulling on it, and then the th- the thruster would turn on, and then it would just quickly. Give a quick yank to that object, and it would deorbit it that way. It just needs a little nudge to get it moving in the right direction. 
Um, and then they were saying that these objects would burn up in the atmosphere. The company I mentioned before, Astrium, is the largest space manufacturer in Europe, and they're also researching other possible methods that involves things like nets, which we've talked about. Uh, I think a Chinese company was working on a, a big net that they wanted to use. Uh, another Japanese. Or it was Japanese. And then um, another one was a robotic grappling device. You know, big arm, come out, just grab it and maybe chuck it. You know, that'd be pretty cool. There was that giant yeah. Pac-Man they were going to put up there. Remember that in a James Bond movie, they had the the ship that swallows other ships, and then all of a sudden, like you know, this, they're communicating with the satellite, and then the front of the ship opens up and swallows the satellite, and then they're like, "What happened to our satellite?" Because remember, I that? like the grappling hook yeah, one because it makes it sound like one of those games where you can win a toy by getting it in, into the hook. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> yeah. Except, you except so? you have to pump a ton of like. Quarters, which would turn into what? That's jet fuel? Right. It's about six billion quarters <laughs> that you would need for each one. For each I'm try. Sorry, I'm sorry, but it's all bullshit. The grappling the f- hook? The whole thing. The fatal flaw is that you have to match the trajectory of the satellite in question. That's the problem. That is what would take so much fuel, it makes the entire proposition untenable. That's the problem. In order to dramatically go to a satellite, change velocity, speed, orbit, Fine doing it once, but if you got to do it twice, three, four, five times, forget it. Do you know how much fuel you would need? That's the main problem with the whole idea of going to each satellite and dealing with it. And I don't care how you deal with it. It doesn't matter how you deal with it. Just getting there is the is the thing that they, they will not overcome in the near future for a while because it's, it's all a problem with, with fuel. Okay, Mr. Negative. So to summarize our show so far, you can't predict the outcome of a roulette wheel. Vitamin D doesn't work for to prevent the common cold, and you can't harpoon satellites. <laughs> yeah, I that think was that's a pretty big buzz. I can't that, do it. That's a good point, though, Bob. I'm not. I'm not disagreeing with that at all. I think I. I I'm not going to say I assume, but I, I. I think that somebody thought of that. You know, it's not like yeah. they're going to be spending millions of dollars coming up with like this harpooning technology. Which, by the way, they are experimenting in the lab right now. You can see video of it. Yeah, Jay. Sure, you could. You could take that technology and apply it to all sorts of of things. You know, the automated killing of whales or lots of things. <laughs> but uh, but they're not going to use it the way they're the way they're talking. Well, maybe well, Bob. Maybe. Bob, it's not going to be a way to declutter our uh, low Earth orbit, but it may be a way to target and remove a single satellite. Sure, that's fine, say. but that's that's not what the proposal was about. There was one thing, hold on, Dr. Reed said that if they were able to just pull a handful of objects out of Earth orbit every year, over over time, that would have a significant influence on the amount of things that are up there. And I, yeah, I like think, and I think what centuries. they're going for here is... I'm, I'm just saying, I, I'm just saying, I'm shocked that they're, that, that they proposed that, because it's, it's been pretty much debunked for, for a long time. And even taking a handful out a year, how many are up there? How many, how many thousands? thousands. But the big thousands. ones, the, there's a snowball effect though, Bob. It's the big ones that are most likely to crash into other objects, and you know, you have one more disaster. There were two things that happened in outer space, just two outer space events that happened in, in orbit. One of them was, uh, China's deliberate destruction. Oh my god. Uh, that that, that weather satellite in 2007. They shot a missile at it. They blew it up in orbit. And the second one was a, Brilliant. was a real collision. It was a, it was a, it was a total accident in 2009 of the Cosmos 2251 in the, the Iridium 33 satellites. They, they crashed into each other. Those two events, um, had a, had a big change in, in the, um, not only our perception or the people's perception that track these things of how dangerous it is, but that actually changed the amount of crap that was 
floating around out there significantly. And, yeah, yeah, made it made it much more dangerous. Yeah, that, I mean that's the huge concern here. That's that's the that's the worst case scenario. You have a catastrophic cascade where one you know one satellite hits another one and explodes that into a million pieces, and that and then it just keeps going until eventually you've got no working satellites in orbit, and you've got this this death storm of debris in orbit that prevents anybody or anything from leaving Earth orbit because you will invariably it's like Wally. Be, be, yeah. Be, so yeah, Bob, like I said, they, they have, they have other right. technologies yep. that they're working on. I don't think that they intend on spearing an 11-centimeter object with the harpoon. I think what they're doing is they're, this is for bigger craft, and it would be, you know, a handful a year, you know, if that many. And well, The harpoon they, itself was pretty small. How big is it? 30 centimeters? 30 centimeters. You could power with a rubber band. <laughs> Twang. Yeah, I saw a video of, the, of them experimenting, and it, I'm telling you that it's small. It's small. It looks like a handheld device. It's 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 not like this big honking thing that they're strapping on top of this giant ship. Yeah, but the the, the thing that's bulky is the satellite that is attached to it. Hey, we'll just put one in our space shuttle and put. Oh, guess you can't do that. Guys, the the point here yeah, is there's multiple technologies they're working on. Who knows if this one's ever going to make it? They're they're just going to they're seeing what's going to work and what they're coming up with. I'm sure that they're talking about fuel expenditure and and costs to get these. These things uh, deorbited. Space pack, man. Jay, I wonder, a key question here, though, Jay, is how many really big satellites are there? I mean, yeah, we know there's tens of thousands of little ones, but uh, what, uh, how many big ones are there that need to be deorbited? And the, and the, you're right, they do pose the biggest dam- danger. They could potentially you know, consist of millions of little pieces that are then going around wiping everything else out. So, so that's, a key, that's a key question. The website, the Satellite Encyclopedia has an up-to-date list of every satellite in orbit. They list a total of 3,755 satellites in orbit, the most uh, by Russia and the former Soviet Union at 1,459. The U.S. is second at 1,320. So that's most of them between those two right there. Uh, and they also list the amount of debris. They give a total of 16,857 satellites and pieces of debris. Uh, although they didn't give the um, the size limit, obviously it depends on where you where you put the size cutoff. Sure. So let's say they go up and they remove three or four a year. I mean, even even pulling a hundred out is going to open up a lot of territory up there and lower the statistical chances of anything horrible happening. And then they get the net. They get you know Japan gets out there with the nets, and then they get the robot arms and the and the whatnot, the big bubble gum and things stick to it, and it just comes back down. They're working on it, Bob. Just sleep better tonight, okay? I know I, they need to work on it because I don't want to be stuck on the on the yeah, earth. We got it. Centuries. We, we got it, Bob. Give it, don't use. Don't worry, you'll be ten, dead by then. Five to ten years, Bob. Five to That's ten right. years. That's right. All right, Becca, t- tell us about scientists studying bee brains. Yeah, scientists are studying bee brains. Turns out, bee brain very good insult. You'd think, but no, uh, bee brains are apparently very interesting. Very interesting to scientists who want to make robots that can process sensory information. Uh, what these scientists who are at the universities of Sheffield and Sussex, what they're doing is uh, they're researching how bee brains process sight and sound, and they're hoping to apply that to robotics. And right now, a lot of the research into artificial intelligence is being done on 
uh, human and, you know, primate uh, simulations of artificial intelligence. And there's not a lot really going on in terms of uh, insect intelligence or, uh, well, in this case, honeybee intelligence. What they're hoping to do is make a tiny flying robot that can behave like a bee. This could, for instance, help uh, pollination. They could do, you know, a sort of artificial pollination process, or it could be bumped up into a larger scale and be used for something like search and rescue, being able to survey a landscape, process the information, and find what you're looking for. Um, that could be very, very important in a robot. So that's what they're doing. They haven't actually made the the bee brain yet, the artificial bee brain, unfortunately. It sounds like this research is still kind of early on. Oh, and one other thing that I thought was interesting is that they, uh, the article mentions that uh, many scientists, scientists have started using graphics cards as number crunching engines because they're cheaper and easier to use than traditional supercomputers. So uh, that's what they're planning to use in this research. Um, they're going to put models of the sensory systems on graphics cards, and hopefully that will be powerful enough to uh, run the bee brain. So, that's yeah, awesome. It's kind of cool. And yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a nice solution just in case our biologists are unable to save the bees from that whole uh, horrific oh, collapse. Yeah. Extension, yeah. Rebecca, do you know Extension. how many neurons there are in the bee brain? The honeybee I'd brain? say at least seven, eight. At least, yep. <laughs> yep. Anyone have I a do serious not. guess? I don't know, it's, uh, five million. Number of neurons? How many neurons? I don't know, how many neurons are in a human brain? About, about 100 billion. 100 billion, so a bee brain, five billion? It's, I, know it's, I know it's as big as mm-hmm. the, the little ball at the tip of a pen. That, mm-hmm. that transports the ink. I know it's like that's how tiny. A hundred so, million, I say. Out of five hundred thousand, yeah, a billion. I'd say a billion. Yeah. I like. Wow, a billion. you guys are all over the place. Nine hundred and sixty thousand. Oh, not not Barely a million. less than a million. Cockroach has about a million. Mouse seventy-five million. Human. Oh yeah, mice are the other. Um, that that's that's one of the other. So I won research. No, what'd you say, Steve? Jay, <laughs> I said uh, nine hundred million. You can't even remember I, what the actual figure was, <laughs> so you can cheat. Nine hundred sixty thousand. That's a lot. Pathetic. So that's a, that's a lot. That's still a lot to model. It's it's a, you know they have some complicated algorithms algorithms in there. I'm sure. That's ten to the ninth synapses. So that's a lot. Of I mean, they don't have to perfectly recreate it though. They just have to find the important parts of it. And yeah. The artificial jellyfish that scientists were making. Science has a benefit over evolution in that they don't have to try and fail and try and fail and have a bunch of parts that don't really do exactly what they want to do. They can pick and choose. So with that in mind, you know, they don't necessarily have to recreate each and every neuron. They just need to find what's responsible for evaluating the sensory input that the bees get and processing that in some way, which is still, you know, an enormous problem. Probably a huge chunk of the bee brain though. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. By the way, how many neurons are there in a sponge? Ooh. I'm going to guess none. Yeah, zero, correct. Really? Yeah. Oh, poor sponge. So what do they do? What about a roundworm? Oh, don't you watch SpongeBob, Rebecca? Isn't that obvious? Uh, SpongeBob no, does have I a don't brain. Because I'm an adult. That's right, he does. Um, they showed it. 
But also, Steve, do you just, uh, do you have all these at your fingertips all the time? Is this just common neurologist? This is what they do when they're at the hospital, Rebecca. They hit each other up, uh, oh, how many brain cells were in a troglodyte? You know, and they're like, a troglodyte? Yeah. (laughs) Some dude's like sipping coffee and he's like, oh, I believe it's, you know, it's like, a little peek inside you. C. elegans, the roundworm, is a yes. is an animal used in a lot of neurological studies because it has oh, it's only in, it's invaluable three hundred and two neurons. We've mapped the entire C. Yeah. elegans or roundworm brain. They're, they're awesome. They're they are so helpful. Yeah, Evan, it's time for who's that noisy? Sure is. I'm going to go ahead and play for you once again. Last week's who's that noisy? Have a listen to this. I know many GPs who now endorse using homeopathy alongside the conventional medicine that they propose. We're not saying that homeopathy is instead of life-saving treatment. We're saying that actually it can save money, it can save time, and I think people need to consider that. So, so who's that about, loser, Evan? Yeah, what do you yeah, think about that advice, right? Terrible advice. Gal's name is Carol Kaplan. She was the style advisor to Sherry Blair and a fitness advisor to Tony Blair during their time in office as the, well, Tony was the prime minister and Sherry was the wife of the prime minister of Great Britain. So, yeah, so she she's on a kick about uh, homeopathy and how, it, uh, how you can basically use it for, well, lots of different things, including treatment of breast cancer. Oh, so she went from, we're not saying it's good for life-saving things to, and now we're going to use it for life-saving conditions like breast cancer. But she's apparently well-known in British circles, and that was uh, taken from a particular interview she did for, uh, the show was called GMTV, which is like a British morning television show. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, surprisingly, we had no correct answers. Lots of guesses, but no correct answers. Mm, no, you stumped everybody week. with an, with that's tough. That's unusual with one where it's essentially somebody speaking because you could sort of Google what they say. Usually people get those. What do you got for us this week, Ev? Here is this week's Who's That Noisy? Info at theskepticsguide.org or sguforums.com. Give us your answer. Good luck, everyone. All right. Well, thanks, Evan. We're going to do one email this week. This email comes from Chris Tusi from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And Chris writes, with what you know and maybe a quick reference to the video Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth, can you as a panel honestly say that there is absolutely nothing interesting or suspicious about the manner in which all of the towers, but specifically World Trade Center Tower Number 7, came crumbling down, especially when you consider the explanation or lack thereof for what caused it to do so? As I mentioned, I feel as though I can rely on you for your honesty, knowledge, and wisdom If you were able to say that there is nothing to be worried about here, then I can honestly say that I will drop the issue and probably convince many others to do the same. Best regards. Yeah. I don't know why he's going to listen to us, but. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) this this topic has been covered and covered and covered and covered by people way more knowledgeable than all of us, including actual engineers and scientists. Engineers. Well, I think he's he's commenting on the fact that he likes the way that we go about doing research and, and deciding on what we believe in, which is nice. I appreciate 
I appreciate him saying that. So there's there's so many different aspects to 9/11 conspiracy theories that you know we've we've covered a lot of it, but there's always new things that we haven't covered. Um, and some points came out with uh, this specific uh, website. Um, the the uh, architects and engineers for 9/11 Truth. So a couple of main points about Building Number Seven was not one of the two main towers. There was the North Tower and the South Tower, which are buildings one and two at the World Trade Center. Uh, building Number Seven was was north of the North Tower, and it was uh, the next tallest building in the cluster. And it also collapsed on 9/11. Um, it of course was not hit by a plane. It was not hit by one of the jets, like the two towers were. And so that has been the focus of a lot of uh, of conspiracy theories about, you know, was this the, the product of a controlled demolition? The Architects and Engineers website makes an, uh, seven points about building number seven that says that uh, makes it seem as if it were a controlled demolition. The rapid onset of the collapse, I'm not sure why they would expect a slow onset if there was a sudden structural failure. The sound of explosion, they give a link to a single interview where somebody's describing Building 7 coming down and said they heard like a thunderclap about a second before the building came down. Again, lots of reasons other than controlled explosions that could cause loud noises while a building is about ready to collapse. The symmetrical implosion, these are kind of like two different points, that it was very symmetrical, it fell straight down, it sort of fell into its own footprint and so it didn't fall over. The debris was was very well contained. There was a massive volume of expanding pyroclastic-like clouds. They quote an expert, an alleged you know demolitions expert, who said yes, it was a controlled demolition. Again, just some guy speaking in German, I think. And there was foreknowledge of the collapse. The foreknowledge one is funny. You know, they 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 reference news reports of newscasters on nine eleven saying. Building 7 may have collapsed, or one person said, you know, this is before it collapsed, saying that it had collapsed. So the idea that there was a little bit of confusion in uh, the report of the news on 9-11, you know, this was, by their own admission, after pouring through a large volume of media reports that day, of newscasts that day, they found two people who said that the building collapsed before it actually did. That's because several hours before Building 7 collapsed, they were worried that it was going to collapse. This wasn't foreknowledge. This was the building didn't look right. The, you know, the building was 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 leaning a little bit and it was bowing, and, and they, they couldn't fight the fires because they didn't have the water pressure. Um, so they knew they weren't going to be able to, to fight the fires that were that were burning inside the building and weakening the infrastructure. And part of the North Tower fell onto Building 7 and took out a huge chunk of it. So the structure had been weakened. Fires were burning. They didn't have the water pressure to, f- to fight them. And they, and they were worried that it was going to collapse. And they were right. That's it. But they parlay that into they knew that it was going to collapse. So... And here's the, also, I think this this reveals a lot about the conspiracy mongering approach, which is anomaly hunting for things that seem a little out of place and then presenting them as if they're somehow sinister or curious, but not really putting forth a coherent scenario. So how do the conspiracy theorists think this played itself out? Whoever, 
was pulling off whatever conspiracy they think happened on 9-11, had rigged Building 7 to be, for, to be demolished for whatever reason. I know sometimes, some people say that that's, that was their operations and control, so they had to cover their tracks. So they picked the next biggest building in the, in the cluster that they had to destroy. There's also like an anti-Semitic theory about evil money-grubbing Jews and insurance money that yeah, I've seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and then because they knew, okay, you know, this time, 520, we're going to blow the building. Make sure you tell these two reporters that this is going to happen. You know, or, what, or like the whole media was in on it, and they just blew their cue. You know, they, they, they blew the timing of when they because they had to tell them ahead of time. Now, in two hours, we're going to blow up this building, and then, then you can announce that it has collapsed. Why would they do that? Why not just let them report it when it happens? Uh, I'm not going to include them in my conspiracy theory in the future. Right. They're on the blacklist. <laughs> not reliable. Like, you know, Can't if you, keep a secret. Take the idea of if that was a professional demolition, the amount of time and energy it takes to prepare a building to do that is huge. Yeah. And it's not, it's not minor stuff. Like it's not a few explosions, explosives here and there. Like there's a lot of gutting of the, of the infrastructure of the building and everything before they can, they can do a controlled demo like that. Yeah. Well, they, of course they say that that's how they know that the 9-11 had to be planned because it would have taken weeks to rig that building to be demolished. But you're right, Jamie. That, that would have been a huge operation to pull off in secret over, you know, weeks leading up to 9-11. Same is true, of course, of the two towers, you know, the, the, Secretly rigging them to 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 be demolished is kind of silly. They also refer to Silverstein, who made the famous quote that well, we decided to pull it, referring to Building Seven. They make a lot about that, I'd referring say, to the people inside Building Seven. Yeah, so he says he was talking about pulling the firefighters out of Building Seven because. They were afraid it was going to collapse, and they didn't want any more loss of life. They, the conspiracy theorists say pull is a technical term that demolitions experts use to refer to demolishing a building. And that is half true. Um, it is a technical term that demolition experts use, but they use it to mean to literally pull a building to one side to control its collapse, not to the demolition of the building. And Building 7 wasn't pulled. And why would Silverstein, who's not a demolition expert, talking to a fire chief who's not a demolition expert, use a technical term, demolitions term? And why would he be giving him that order anyway? Again, it doesn't make any sense. There's no coherent story here. It's just something that sounded anomalous to them. And they made this tenuous and actually not really factually accurate connection to a demolition term, and that's the conspiracy. And Silverstein is, I mean, if you'll note the name, he is one of the main people that's charged with being a, you know, yeah, for for having an insurance thing out on the, the lease. And it, I mean, there's just so much anti-Semitism and 9-11 trutherism that it's difficult to really convey how disgusting it all is. Now, the contention that experts have not explained how Building 7 fell or, or the towers is, is simply not true. Uh, the, they were structurally compromised, and the fire was, was, was hot enough and did burn long enough to compromise the uh, integrity of the steel so that it was weakened. And then once any part of that building gives way, 
it's not really capable of supporting its own weight and it's going to com- collapse you know on, on, it's not like it's not like it can partly stand or that it would fall to the side that's just silly that's just ridiculous for a building of that of that height it, they would collapse just as they did straight down right into their footprint that's what would happen uh there's really nothing unusual or curious about that at all um and and also we need to point out that there was no controlled demolition. There were no explosions. You know, they, they, there's no video or evidence of of the kinds of explosions that you see when a building actually gets demolished. Not even close. They're looking at, you know, dust coming out of windows and saying, "Look, that was an explosion." Well, it's after the collapse started, and no, it's not. Or you know, one witness somewhere who said, I heard a thunderclap, okay, but there was, there's no, with all <laughs> the witness. cameras and everything running, I mean, there's no recording of demolition explosions, there's no visually or, or auditory to, to, there's no evidence for a demolition, it's just not there. And it would have been pretty difficult to hide on that day at that time. What collapses here is the conspiracy theory. You know, Ooh, collapses nice. in its own weight. Thank you. And uh, again, it's still, there's just no coherent story there. They're just, they're just anomaly hunting and then making those, those apparent anomalies look sinister just by the way they present them. But um, yeah, yeah, another big point, you, you did make it, but I think we need to expand on it a little bit, is the idea of the amount of people that would have had to have been involved with the cover-up that alone would collapse on its own weight. Like, let's say the entire 9-11 conspiracy was pulled off with a 1,000 people, which I, I'm just pulling a round number out of the air, but I couldn't imagine that entire event happening with less than that many people involved. It would have to be at least a 1,000, if not thousands of people, to help orchestrate everything. You know, if you're going to plant explosives in, in a building and all of the different things that had to take place, you know, pulling people off of airplanes and killing them and, and, you know, putting corpses on planes, whatever they did, you know, all that stuff that needed to take place. It would never, ever be able to remain quiet. Ever. It's, it's humanly impossible. It just, it's not the way that, that humans are wired. It just, I mean, keep... this isn't the freaking A team. You know, I don't, the, the government couldn't pull it off, let alone keep it quiet. They couldn't pull it off. It's, it's it, that's what they're proposing is so complicated. What, you know, when, yeah, when has our government been able to pull off anything that sophisticated uh, and have it the, all go off without a hitch? It's just the moon hoax, and and then cover it up. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah, right. Yeah, they couldn't even pull off Watergate for God's sakes. <laughs> yeah, no. Steal a couple of documents, Bung, bungling Jesus. burglars. <laughs> Yeah, my my favorite example is I couldn't cover up a blowjob in the overall Oval Office. Yeah. <laughs> oh God, that is true. It's true. Um, but those were false flag operations to make it seem like they're incompetent, so that they could pull uh, off the real stuff. Of That's course, right? Yeah. yeah. See, the rabbit hole always just goes one level deeper whenever you come up with some kind of reasonable objection to the That's conspiracy right. theory. Thanks for your email. But thanks, Chris. Hetz. I I enjoy talking about it. It's always fun. It's time for science or fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious, and I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. However, this week... Bob will be doing the honors of science or fiction. Wait, wait. I was supposed to prepare this? That's right. Oh, boy. All right. I got to wing it. Okay. So, 
Don't you tell that joke every time? Do I? I think I've only <laughs> said it two or three times before. Um, okay, I've got three and I'm ready to go. There is no theme. I'm sure you'd be happy, Rebecca, to hear that. Mm-hmm. I know I how am. much you don't like themes. Okay, number one. Recent research supports the claim that the rise in allergies in the past century is due to excessive cleanliness and hygiene. Number two, theoretical physicists claim that quantum mechanics supports the notion that an event can both can be both a cause and an effect of another event. And number three, recent study shows that commonly prescribed beta blockers do not protect against heart attack and stroke. Let's see, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Jay, go first. Okay, so the first one about the the research that supports the claim that allergies uh, in the past century are due to excessive cleanliness and hygiene. Wow, that's uh, that's really if that is true, that is going to send a lot of people spinning because of how much of the uh, antibacterial stuff that we use. I've read many times that that you know it's. You need to uh, exercise our immune system. So, sure, I could see this having something to do with it. Okay, so the second one about uh, an event being both a cause and effect of another event. Now, of course, we're talking quantum mechanics here. In in the macro world, we know that thing, uh, something cannot be the, the cause and effect. But maybe in the micro world, they can be. Um, so that that's another one of those, yeah, okay, I could see it. The fact that I don't know that much about about quantum mechanics, I don't know that how many people really do know that much about it. But that's that's an interesting one that I'm on the fence about. You don't. Einstein didn't even uh, buy it. This last one about beta blockers protecting, saying that they don't protect against heart attack and stroke. I mean, beta blockers lower your blood pressure. Lowering your blood pressure seems to be a very healthy thing, uh, especially for things like heart attacks and strokes. Out of the three, this is the only one that I, I have a little bit of a red flag going up for, so I'm going to take this one as the fake. Okay, Rebecca. Well, crap, because that's the one that I was fairly confident was true. Because I just, I, I don't know, I feel like there are, I don't really know much about beta blockers or heart attacks or strokes. However, I could see how maybe there are other, there could be other causes of those things, and beta blockers might help in a small amount but couldn't fully protect against those things um maybe the effect they have just isn't strong enough so yeah i don't know that one seems believable to me the rise in allergies due to excessive cleanliness and hygiene that's something that seems tailor-made for me because that's something that i really want to believe mostly because of my anecdotal evidence like i was a filthy kid who was always playing out in the woods in the dirt and the mud and I have no allergies basically and I like secretly in my head blaming other people for their own allergies (laughs) (laughs) uh so that said I I feel like this is something that feeds into something that a lot of people think uh and that could actually just be yeah just be purely anecdotal and not actually have any basis in reality um, so it's a, it's a sort of commonsensical sounding thing that I could see you trying to sell as science, even though it's actually the fiction. And I feel the opposite way about the notion that an event can be both a cause and of and and an effect of another event. Okay, well, yeah, like Jay says, um, quantum physics. Yeah, why why not? Why can't that happen? Sure. 
And theoretical physicists claim that quantum mechanics supports this notion. Has ever a more wishy-washy statement been said? I mean, they haven't proved, they haven't offered evidence for, they're just saying. <laughs> they're just saying that quantum mechanics supports that notion. And why not? It's an idea that at first blush seems uh, ridiculous. However, uh, that, of course, makes it a good choice for the science. So with those in mind, I'm going to say the allergies one is the fiction. Okay, Evan. The allergies one, I suppose what could be happening here, though, is you have all this cleanliness and hygiene going on. You're cutting down on the bacteria and the things that, well, frankly, we've been exposed to for so long, and then our immune system does something or can't handle it in some way, and uh, allergies result in, in, in some fashion. not sure if that's too convoluted, but I kind of think it's something along those lines is going on here. I'm not sure what to make of that. That could be either. Quantum mechanics supporting the notion that an event can be both a cause and effect of another event. Theoretical physicists can claim a lot of things, <laughs> um, but I imagine they don't claim things, you know, without actually having something to back it up. Okay, I'm leaning towards that one being uh, science. The last one about the beta blockers, I don't know much about beta blockers, you know, heart attack and stroke, you know, well, maybe a little bit more. I, I suppose that could be why exactly, I'm not sure, but... I guess I'm leaning towards Rebecca. I think the allergies one, there's something amiss here, and I'll say that uh, we're missing a little piece of information in this sentence. I'll say that one's the fiction. Okay, Bob. I, I mean, Steve. Yeah, I can go I can go either way on all of these. So there's two medical ones in here, uh, yeah. which actually doesn't help me. Both of these <laughs> hypotheses are old and... Yes, there are. I'm familiar with research supporting both of these. The hygiene hypothesis has been around for a while. There is evidence to support it, but it's not certainly ironclad. It's not a settled question. So I could buy that a new study came out that went one way or the other. That's fine. Same thing with the beta blockers and their protective effect. It's a complicated question. It depends on how you ask it, how you measure it. I know there's research that shows that beta blockers do not reduce you know, the incidence of heart attacks or prevent uh, heart failure, um, it, but it depends on what patient population you're talking about, et cetera, and are you you know controlling for the effects on high blood pressure, as Jay said. So that's again that could go either way. You know that's plausible either way. The quant you know quantum you know physicists say quantum mechanics is something weird. You know it's almost a generically okay. You could buy that. I, obviously, I have a problem with the notion of violating causality. But as you should. The question is. Is that really what they're talking about here, or is it not really violating causality because of some quantum weirdness? Uh, you know what I mean? So I'm going to go with the quantum mechanics one. <laughs> Just to make sure Bob doesn't <laughs> wow. win. Good call. <laughs> I was leaning that way anyway, uh, but it's, it's a nice, you know, the, the fact that this would prevent Bob from getting a sweep is a is a bonus. Motivation. Wow. <sighs> from hell's heart, I stab at thee. So bring us <laughs> down, Bob. Come on, land this All point. right, okay. Let's start with number three. Uh, let's see. Recent studies show that commonly prescribed beta blockers do not protect against heart attack and stroke. And that one is science. Sorry, Damn Jay. You. Damn um, you, sir. 
Now, researchers, uh, researchers, researchers report this in the Journal of American Medical Association. After studying over 22,000 participants over a median follow-up of 44 months, 22,000, is that enough for you, Steve? That's pretty good. That's good? All right. I thought you'd like that. So beta blockers were once seen as the leading treatment for heart, heart attack patients. So when this drug was released about 30 years ago, uh, there weren't any statins, no statin drugs to, to lower cholesterol. There were no stents to hold arteries open. So on their own, they, they seemed helpful. Uh, but now, but now since most people everywhere, or at least in the study that they did, most everyone was already on, on one of the newer drugs as well. And I think the main thrust was that, that in these days with modern statins and stents, uh, beta blockers are, are pretty much irrelevant. Pre, uh, previous studies years ago seemed to show that beta blockers prevented heart attacks, but most of them apparently were analyses that were done over the short term. There was no real long-term studies with it, with, with a huge, uh, you know, with the huge population of people like the 22,000 for this one. Uh, in one study, the beta blockers were given to people with no symptoms. Uh, but they did have risk factors, but they were asymptomatic. They actually did worse than people not getting, not getting the, the beta blockers. So that was uh, kind of, kind of, uh, nasty. So beta, beta blockers still, of course, have a use. They are, they're great right after a heart attack. And they're also really good for patients experience heart, experiencing heart failure. But, um, but it looks like if you want to take it as a preventative measure, uh, that it's, it's really not doing really, it's not going to help you. And you're just much better off using the modern medicines that are available today. Let's go to let's go to two theoretical physicists claim that quantum mechanics supports the notion that an event can be both a cause and an effect of another event. Steve, you said that one was fiction, and that one is science. Uh-huh. So oh. yeah, I guess it was naive of me to assume that you would all be aghast at the notion of violation of cause and effect. But, um, yeah, I didn't think so. (laughs) Um, so this one was true. The findings we published this week in Nature Communications. Now, it's important to note that this phenomenon uh, has not been seen in an experiment, only that it's not inconsistent with quantum mechanics. Um, in everyday life, now events are obviously they're ordered. One event takes place after another. Event A causes event B. So it's kind of inconceivable to even think of an effect preceding its own cause. Now, so to understand how this is possible in quantum mechanics, you got to think of the notion of superposition, uh, which is, dare I say, one of the magical aspects of quantum mechanics. It really is. I love it. And it really is amazing. Certain quantum yeah. systems that can exist in multiple states, like an electron being in any of the po- of its possible locations around an atom, it can experience a superposition of states. That means that it's actually in all possible states at the same time. Uh, at least, un- at least it until it decoheres or interacts with the environment, which importantly includes being observed by a scientist. So in the same in the same way then the causal order events in in the quantum realm could also be in this superposition of states. Now says uh Agnan Oreshkov from the University um, of Brussels, uh he says that such a superposition, however, has not been considered in the standard formulation of quantum mechanics since the theory always assumes a definite causal order between events. But if we believe that quantum mechanics governs all phenomena, it's natural to expect that the order of events could also be indefinite. So they, they haven't found it, but they found nothing in quantum mechanics that, 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 would, that makes you think that it can't happen. And it's pretty much just been assumed that, hey, it, you know, it's, it's, there's got to be causality. 
but there's no real reason to assume that um, in quantum mechanics. So I assume now they'll be looking around trying to find evidence of uh, of this, and it would be truly amazing if they if they found that. Uh, I would be. I mean, obviously, it wouldn't it wouldn't trickle up into the macro world because causality obviously uh, um, you know holds sway in our in our realm. But uh, it would be still an amazing advancement in quantum mechanics, nonetheless. So, which means recent research supports the claim that there's that the rise in allergies in the past century is due to excessive cleanliness and hygiene is fiction. Congratulations, Rebecca and Evan. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Bob. So the, the the real title was "Increase in Allergies is Not from Being Too Clean, Just Losing Touch with Old Friends," which is what they, what they call the microbes, what? the microbes that we uh, evolved with. Now, reports. This is a report will be out on October third from the International Scientific Forum on Home Hygiene. Now, losing touch with microbes we evolved alongside can be a significant factor in the increase we've seen not only in allergies but also SIDS, chronic inf- inflammatory diseases like type one diabetes and multiple sclerosis, all of which seem to be caused by this, you know, this impaired regulation of our of our immune systems. Professor Graham Rook uh, is also the co-author of the report. He developed this whole idea of this old friends version of the hy- hypothesis. Uh, he said that the rise in allergies and inflammatory diseases seems at least partly due to gradually losing contact with the range of microbes our immune systems evolved with. And this study's been going on for like for 20 years, ever since actually ever since the hygiene hypothesis was first proposed. Uh, Professor Sally Bloomfield said that the underlying idea that microbial expo- exposure is crucial to regulating the immune system is right, but the idea that children who have fewer infections because of more hygienic homes, are then more likely to develop asthma and other allergies. This doesn't hold up. So our our society has changed so much over the over the generations. Uh, and you know, even if even if you uh, weren't very clean in your house, uh, the germs would have to come in from the outside, right? But so many people, you know, live live in live in cities and in in environments that we just uh, you know that are new to to civilization. That those th- those microbes wouldn't even Go into your house to uh, to infect you and and help regulate your immune system because they're just not out there anymore. And and maybe Rebecca, maybe if you were messing around in the woods, getting dirty and and stuff, that would be more similar to the way uh, you know civilizations have have been for you know for for centuries and, and millennia uh, before modern times. So maybe that 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 is a factor. But it's uh, it's an interesting uh, proposal and uh, and I, I was a little surprised because I had I had heard for years now that like Steve was saying that. You know, people are just too clean and hygienic, and that's the reason why we're having this such a rise in allergies. And it's really, n- that's not the whole picture. And it looks like a bigger factor might be this whole idea of the old friends, the microbes that we that we evolved with, uh, just not being around anymore, and and it having a deleterious effect on the regulation of our immune systems. Well, good job, uh, good job, Rebecca. High five and two snaps. <laughs> oh my god, two wow. snaps. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, we went there. We yeah, <laughs> we we did not hold back, guys. I have an awesome quote for this week. What do you got? Do you? Yeah, this quote was sent in by a listener that only gave his first name. So thank you, Tim. This is a quote by Patrick Henry. So some of you will know who he is, but Patrick Henry was born 1736, died 1799. He was an attorney, a planter, and a politician who became known as an orator during the movement for independence in Virginia, which is in the United States, in 1770s. He was one of our founding fathers, and during an incredibly uh, profound speech that he gave, and in 1775, 
where he said, give me liberty or give me death, which I'm sure a lot of you will recognize that. He said something very interesting. He said, for my part, whatever anguish of spirit it may cost, I am willing to know the whole truth, to know the worst, and to provide for it. I love this quote. And that was a quote spoken by Founding Father Patrick Henry. Yeah, that's a good quote. Yeah, very good quote. And I always like when the fa- when the Founding Fathers can find their way into our show. Well, thanks for joining me this week, everyone. I have one announcement, sure. Steve. Yeah. Oh. You're pregnant? <laughs> good one, Rebecca. No, but I was the guest on another podcast. Oh, cool. Yeah, how'd that go? No, we don't allow no. other podcasts here. It was it was a lot of fun. The podcast is called, well, the Haya Martial Arts Podcast. Hi-ya. Oh my god. Talking about martial arts and my involvement with Krav Maga and we talked about a little bit about the history of Krav Maga, the martial art itself and certainly skepticism and science and uh the overlapping of the two and you know where people, you know, can be deceived and uh, how other people get deceived in the martial arts. We talked about all those topics and more. You how can you find can them at- karate chop somebody in the throat if they deceive you. Oh, gosh. They so deserved it, too. That's the crab style where you got to walk sideways? <laughs> no. Crab Maga? Zoidberg Crab Maga. This is Crab Maga. Oh, oh. <laughs> You're getting your Zoidberg uh, mixed up in <laughs> right. there. Like. Haya is spelled H-I-Y-A-A. And then followed by podcast.com. Episode number 17, you'll find me there. I had a blast doing it. Thanks, guys, for having me on. Nice. All right, thanks, Evan. And thanks, everyone, for joining me this week. We love you, Steve. Thank you, Doctor. Anytime. Thanks for covering science or fiction this week, Bob. Good job, Bob. Certainly, man. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcast, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website. Or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zoom, or your portal of choice.